All right, our ushers are coming by to uh, deliver the note sheets and pencils. If you need a Bible, of course, raise your hand so that the guys can bring one to you and uh, provide the word for you so that we will all be on the same page. We'll all be looking at the same perfect and errant and sufficient word that God has given to us that we might be the people who will glorify him in this life and beyond. One of the most significant franchises in the history of the National Football League is the Green Bay Packers. And much of that can be tied to the impact of legendary coach Vince Lombardi, who led Green Bay starting in the 1959 season. That year, Lombardi would take his team to the NFL championship game. There wasn't yet a Super Bowl at that time. Um, but there, the Green Bay Packers lost a close contest in the fourth quarter to the Philadelphia Eagles. When the team returned in July, there were high hopes that with just a little bit of adjustment here and there, the Packers would be primed to make another run at the championship. So some were surprised when the first thing that Coach Lombardi did that season was to gather his team together, hold up a pigskin, and declare, gentlemen, this is a football. There were some of the best players in the world gathered before Vince in that moment, but Lombardi was convinced that in order to be a championship-level team, the Packers needed to take nothing for granted. They needed to return their attention to the most basic and fundamental truths of the game. So for the next several months, Lombardi would spend tremendous amounts of time drilling his men on how to hold the ball, how to block, how to receive a catch. The very fundamentals, the building blocks of the sport did it work? Lombardi's Green Bay Packers defeated the New York Giants in the championship game 37 to nothing that year as the most fundamentally sound team in the league. Lombardi would never lose a postseason game again, going on to win five championships in seven years in Green Bay. When it comes to faithfully living a Christian life, love is like our football in some regards. It is one of the most basic and elemental things that must define the relationship that God establishes between himself and his people. And so it is absolutely critical that those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ understand the basic fundamental principle of love. For God himself is love, and those who are called by the name of Christ are those who love the Lord with all of their heart with all of their mind, with all their soul and strength, and who likewise love their neighbor as they love themselves. So the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 lays out an extensive definition of what love is. And we will spend the next several Sundays meditating on this most essential concept. So if you've got your Bible and you're open to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 for us this morning. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord God, we thank you for love. It is such an important aspect of who you are, Lord God, and it is such an important thing for us to learn, to rejoice in, and to pursue. And so I do ask, God, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds 
to be ready for the word that you have given to us this morning. May we dwell upon it, Lord God. May this time that we spend with you not be just a brief exercise in pious obedience, Lord, where we come and do what is expected of a Christian to do. But I pray that instead, Lord, today we would, we would feast upon the Word. We would want to spend time thinking and meditating on these lofty principles, Lord God, and you would give us uh, a, a desire and a drive to not only hear these things, but to practice them in obedience to you because we love you and we are loved first by you. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be uh, patient as sometimes the principles of your scripture are hard for us to digest and fully grasp, but let us not lay aside the task until it is complete, God. Help us to continue to seek after you and to desire to know more and more of you. And we trust that you will give us more of yourself today as we read in Jesus' name. Amen. To truly understand something, you've got to grasp more than what the thing is. You have to also have a thorough awareness of what it is not. Last week, Pastor Paul helped us to focus on the first assertions of chapter 13, namely that love is long-suffering and love is kind. But as we continue to examine the content of verse 4, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is shifting his emphasis to the opposite side of the spectrum of the definition of the essential principles of love. From time to time, faithful Christians may hear criticism from unbelievers who claim that our faith is far too negative and restrictive. They might say, why are you always talking about the things that you don't do or what you don't believe? You should be more concerned about what you are for rather than what you are against. But that attitude is simplistic, and I think it is a reflection of the anything-goes relativism that is plaguing modern thought today. It is not wrong to think about what we are not. It is not wrong to stand for what we believe in, but also to stand against what we reject. It might seem more optimistic and cheerful to focus all of our energy on what we are for, but especially considering that love is so universally misunderstood and misrepresented in our culture. I think it's fair to say that the Western world has very little concept of what love is not. And so they make huge mistakes of calling things love that are in fact completely contradictory to what true love is. The Christian needs to know the difference between godly love and worldly love. When Paul firmly declares that love is patient and love is kind, he is also certainly declaring that there are certain things love cannot be. That is what Paul is driving at in a letter that he will soon write to the church in Rome when he writes in Romans 12, 9. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. But I actually prefer the New American Standard rendering of this a little better because it's a bit more emphatic here. It says, Love must be free of hypocrisy. Detest what is evil. Cling to what is good. So we must have a kind of love that doesn't say yes to everything because not everything in the world can be unified to itself. Godly love cannot just be anything we want it to be or it ends up being a hypocritical, self-contradicting mess. This love that Paul is urging the Corinthians to pursue cannot be patient and kind and at the same time be envious or boastful. So let us take our time this morning and consider what love is not. 
Godly love does not envy. It does not envy. Now, examining on the word level here, the Greek term for envy, uh, in the Greek it is rendered uh, zeloi, it has a very wide semantic range. In other words, this word can mean many things depending on its context. Historically, the word meant literally to boil over. That is where the word came from originally. When you would boil water, the kind of raging gases that are trying to escape that fluid uh, were what zeloi was meant to capture. But over time, this term became more commonly used to describe an abundance of emotional passion or zeal towards something. Now, it's worth mentioning that in the English language, there are some technical distinctives between envy and jealousy. To envy something properly in the English means to strongly desire what you don't have, to strongly desire what somebody else is in possession of. While jealousy, if you want to get real fine with it, is to strongly want to keep what you already have and to keep it only for yourself. Now, in the Greek language, those terms do not draw such fine distinctions. The terms they use to speak of, zeal- or of uh, jealousy or envy are used interchangeably in that language. And to be honest, in practice, that's becoming that way in English as well. We often say that we envy something when we really mean we're jealous of it and vice versa. So we don't want to get too caught up in the difference between those two terms right now. The heart of it is the same. Zeloi, here translated as envy, communicates a burning desire for a thing. Zeloi is, in fact, where our English term zealous comes from which describes a passion that is sometimes inappropriate, but sometimes completely appropriate. The term's already been used by Paul in a negative way earlier in this letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So there in, in verse 3, Paul was pointing out this this bubbling zeal that the Corinthians had as they opposed one another concerning the different teachers that they aligned with. Some people were for Apollo, some people loved Peter, others stuck with Paul. And so he was saying, it should not be divided like this. Don't just cling to one teacher and and insist that everyone else must make that teacher their favorite. These are all men of God trying to preach the one true Christ. So he, he calls out this division that is happening that's that's threatening the unity that God desires for His church. This jealousy there in verse 3 is a form of the same word we're looking at here in chapter 13. Paul uses it to describe a kind of bitter rivalry and contention that existed among the people at Corinth. But zeloi does not have to be a negative word. In fact, Paul often uses the term positively in other places. So in 1 Corinthians 12.31, for example, Paul encourages these same Corinthians with that word zeloi, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, speaking of the spiritual gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. We just learned about this a couple weeks ago. That term for earnestly desire means have a zeal for these higher gifts. Seek after them. Pray that the Lord would bless you with them. Later on in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, he's going to say, pursue love and earnestly desire. Again, there's that term zeloi. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, that you may proclaim the true things that God has revealed to us. So it is at times noble to boil over with passion for godly things. Christians should have an earnest longing to be blessed with the kinds of gifts that can make an impact 
on the body of Christ that can be a, a joy and a support to brothers and sisters around them. And we can even consider Jesus himself in this. In his defense of the holiness of God's temple, Jesus took violent action against those who were willing to defile it and were trying to make a dishonest profit off those who were sincerely coming to worship God in faith. We see it in John 2, Matthew 21, and Mark 11. After observing the tables being overturned by Christ, who was determined to clean, cleanse the temple and, and get rid of this, this unholy element from the house of God, the money changers have been driven out with what equates to a bullwhip, as Jesus had gathered together switches from a tree and had struck them with these whips to get them out of the temple of God, the 12 disciples see it. And then they make sense of Christ's passionate outburst in John 2.17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this zeal is appropriate when it is about godly things. The potential range of this word encompasses both behavior to be applauded and behavior to be avoided and repentant of. So we must take a careful look at zeloi as it is cited in a negative sense in reference to love here. Really, it gets down to the selfless character of true love. To love is to strive for someone else's greater good. And what is good for someone is not necessarily the thing that that person wants for themselves. What is the greatest good that anyone can experience? Closeness to the God of creation, to the God of redemption. To be right with God is the greatest good for anyone. So to truly love someone to the best that we can means to urge them towards Christ who could be their greatest blessing. See, the great irony with this word here is that many misunderstand love to be nothing more than a desirous yearning for a thing, which is actually an acceptable translation for zeloi. But that translation doesn't fit at all with what Paul is preaching about here concerning love. Quite the opposite. It's not some indiscriminate passion that love, uh, that we should understand to be love. If we do not define what love is not, then we will call, call all kinds of selfish and wicked practices love. Corinth was falling into that self-serving pattern. Rather than wanting the best for each other, they had fallen into these habits that were actually destroying the unity of the church. Some were identifying with certain leaders and isolating others who were identifying with leaders that were different than the leader they liked. We already spoke a little bit about that. Others were neglecting the poor at communion, bringing great spreads of food for themselves and their little group of friends, while others were going hungry and were not able to even eat the basic bread and wine of communion. Some were exercising their Christian liberties without regard to the weak conscience of inexperienced and brand new Christians who weren't yet clear on whether it was, uh, it was free for a Christian to eat meat that had been sacrificed in idols. And so Paul's bringing all these things to the surface. And now rivalries are existing in the church of Corinth that Paul is addressing concerning the spiritual gifts and whether a person was somehow less of a Christian if they couldn't speak in tongues or if they didn't have the kind of faith that could miraculously move a mountain. It is possible for the church today to make such mistakes even now. We can make these kinds of mistakes with our friends, can't we? Do you ever find yourself constantly trying to outdo your brothers and sisters? Trying to tell a better story than they told when you're gathered in a group? Trying to make a better financial decision so you can brag about your investments? Or trying to take a better vacation that you can plaster on Instagram or Facebook so everybody would wish they were in your shoes? 
All for what? To bolster our fragile egos? To impress people by making them feel like they somehow fall short of how blessed we happen to be? This is a form of envy that makes us constantly see our companions as rivals in life. Do not confuse your drive to be thought of as smarter or as more successful than others as some kind of positive zeal. It is not. Rather, it is a preference for ourselves over others that seriously handicaps our capacity for love. For love considers the well-being of another even over our own well-being. We can make this mistake, this envious mistake in our marriages. As you interact throughout the day with your husband or with your wife, is, is there an invisible scoreboard in your head where you subconsciously keep track of who is getting their way? And rather than wanting the best for your spouse at all times, it can be so tempting to keep close track of how they act to show us that they want what's best for us. And if they fall short of our expectations, we may start to pull ourselves back and give less to them until they start meeting our needs better. What is this? It is bitter rivalry. It is envy. And that is not love. That's a business arrangement of some kind. That's economic negotiations. Well, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you, and it'll all come out even and equal in the end. That's not what love is. Love is self-sacrificing. It cares about the needs that others have over our own needs. Can you see how this kind of envy has the potential to undermine the very heart of mission? If we let it pollute the love that we show to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at the church, we're undermining the great commission that God has called us to. We get all dressed up, we come to the building on Sunday morning, pull into the parking lot, and throughout the, the, the morning service, we're, our minds are constantly scanning and looking at other people to see what they're wearing, to see uh, whether they've They've remembered our prayer request that we brought up last week. Make, make sure that those who we expect to talk to us take time to talk to us. And if they don't, we get offended about it. We're keeping a score on, on how useful some of these spiritual gifts are to the church and whether they're contributing as much as we are to the well-being of the body. This is the kind of envy that was plaguing Corinth, and it still affects churches today. Christians in the, the church next to us are not to be viewed as our rivals or as our competition. If, if we see people that way, then church is going to feel not like a family, but like a battleground. It's going to feel like you're constantly under target and under, under fire when you come to church. We should be happy to serve God with whatever gifting God has chosen to give to us. But that's not the same as constantly trying to outdo others and shine in such a way that your brothers and sisters will approve of you and even prefer you over themselves. We see an example of this kind of envious kind of tension existing in the church very early on in Matthew chapter 20. When we read, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? And they said to him, we are able. What's going on here is that James and John, their mother, wants great things for them. Perhaps for their own good, but also perhaps for her notoriety. And so she's trying to convince Jesus that her sons are the most worthy disciples of the twelve to be his right hand and left hand man. 
And Jesus is warning them. He's urging them. You don't know what you are asking for. For the cup that I'm about to drink from is a cup of suffering. It's a cup of sacrifice. It is a cup of true love. Verse 23, And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Notice what happens next. And then when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. You see, as the other disciples hear James and John jockeying for this position of honor and prestige, they're offended by it. They feel like they've been made little of because these two are trying to make much of themselves. And so there is envy and strife now formulating amongst the brothers. But Jesus called them in verse 25 to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I love to see how this was absorbed by the disciples because... Later on, years later, after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, after the beginning of the early church, you read in Peter's letter to the churches in Asia Minor, chapter 5, where he's describing godly leadership, and he echoes some of this, this, these key principles that God is trying to relate to his disciples about how our leadership should not be lording our authority over people, but it should be a gentle kind of leadership. It should be a leadership that leads by example. In John 3, verses 26 through 30, we have an example of the opposite. We have an example of the kind of love that is being proclaimed and described here by the Apostle Paul. John 3, 26 through 30 speaks of a moment when John the Baptist is approached by his own disciples. John was preaching and preparing the way for Christ to come, and there were men who had dedicated themselves to helping him in that regard. And these disciples of John, they came, verse 26 of John 3, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. You see the concerns in in the eyes and the minds of these, these disciples of John the Baptist. They're afraid that their guy is being marginalized, right? We've got a baptism ministry here. How come Jesus is coming along and everyone's going to him now? Does this mean that that what we're doing is unimportant? Imagine being John and hearing these guys come to you and saying, You know, John, we've been following after you and we know that you're of God and and it seems like your ministry is starting to shrink. What do we do about this? Oh, how man's desire to be adored and advocated for could have tempted John the Baptist's mind in that moment. How easy it would have been for him, having heard others complaining on his behalf, to have allowed himself to fall into that discontent and to find himself desiring the kind of glory and attention that his relative Jesus was getting. He had been in the public eye longer than Jesus. He had made sacrifices to make sure that the message of God was being put forth in power. What success he had had seeing large groups of native Jews repenting and coming and and asking him, how do we get right with the Lord? Desiring the mercy of God. He had been successful by and large in his preaching. And so I wonder, was there a brief hesitation in John the Baptist when his men came and said these things to him? Did he almost desire to hear more from his followers about how John was being underappreciated and and overlooked? 
We don't see any evidence, however, that John felt that way. To the contrary, what do we see? In verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Just stop and think about that for a minute. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John the Baptist knew that he was in the position he was not because of his great intellect, not because of his impeccable bloodline, not because he was charismatic, and because people adored him. He was doing what he was doing because God called him to do it. Verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see the humility there and the beauty in the way that John the Baptist recognized the extent of his influence and ministry. He cared about the exaltation of the Christ. He cared about that much more than his own credit or kudos And so he puts these men's hearts at rest. If this is the end of his ministry, if his ministry must decrease, so be it. It is the will of God, and it will only result in the greater ministry of Christ replacing it. How can we envy one another, brothers and sisters, when the love of Christ has been so generously poured out upon our own hearts? Brothers and sisters in Jesus, what do we lack that we have not already been given in Christ. And if atonement and regeneration and sanctification and the perfect righteousness imputed of our Savior and the promise of inheritance and the seal of the Spirit have all been graciously given to us with absolutely no charge to us, how can we crave for ourselves something that God in His sovereignty has chosen to give to someone else instead of to us? How can we envy them? There is no bounds to his generosity and grace to us. We have been given far more than we could ever deserve or earn. So let us strike envy from our definition of acceptable love. Furthermore, this godly love does not boast. It doesn't boast. There's a bit of a play on words in the Greek Greek here. We've talked about how the root of zeloi is to boil over the, the, the history of that word comes from this idea of a physical bubbling up. And the literal meaning of fusiotai, uh, which is in the Greek, um, the, le- the word translated here to boast, is to be puffed up, to be filled with air, like an egotistical person spewing out arrogant thoughts because they are full of hot air. It means to bear oneself up loftily. So the one who boasts is the one who presents a swollen inflated version of themselves to the world. When we boast, we're presenting an inflated version of ourselves to those around us. We're trying to come across as greater than we actually are. You've probably heard uh, an arrogant athlete or celebrity say, it's not bragging if it's true. (laughs) I can't say that. (laughs) But even for the most successful person, the grounds for their bragging and boasting is only ever half the truth. 
No matter how strong or wise or influential you happen to be, there is another side to the story. You are also a wretched sinner in need of grace. You have also racked up a moral debt so incredibly large that no amount of effort or success or gifting could ever cancel that out. That is the rest of the story. So what does our bragging mean if that is indeed true of us? If we have failed to do what we were designed to do, if we have failed to give glory to God and obey His law, if that is true of us, then what does all my bragging mean about the things that I do right? It means nothing. It is empty in light of the fact that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, every one of us is nothing, can do nothing, and has nothing of his own. Boasting is being full of meaningless hot air, something that makes us look big but is really nothing at all. It is swollen emptiness. Christians are supposed to be filled But empty self-praise is not exactly what we are supposed to be filled with, is it? Reflecting on uh, the study that's been going on in Sunday school in Ephesians 5, this first came to mind as I was thinking about this false filling of hot air and how it contrasts with what God calls us to be filled with. In Ephesians 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5 is is a parallel passage to this chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians because it's all about how we love one another as believers. It's about the active obedience of Christ that causes us to support one another and to submit to one another in love. And so how can we, knowing that everything good that we have comes from Christ, how can we afford to boast and to try to position ourselves above these brothers that we're to support and submit to in love? Let us remember chapter 13 is in the middle of an exposition on the spiritual gifts where the Apostle Paul is teaching us to walk by the Spirit and be filled with power and love so that we will desire to use the gifts that we've been given, not to build a reputation for ourselves, not to show off God's favor for us in some kind of selfish way, but to be of service to someone who would benefit from the same kind of grace that we've been shown. So if your gift is the gift of mercy, then give that mercy to the people around you that they might experience compassion when they are hurting. If your gift is generosity, then find ways to use the resources that God has given to you to be a blessing to the people of your church and the community that your church is trying to reach. If your blessing, your gift from the Holy Spirit is hospitality, then open up your home and invite people in. Make those who are new to your church feel like they belong here. Make that effort to establish friendships with them so they will not feel like a stranger when they come and sit and worship this God that belongs to all of us. And where does that hunger to do those things come from? Where does that hunger for more of Christ's Spirit come from? That, hum- that hunger comes from, this, from the Spirit itself, from the indwelling Holy Spirit. But a hunger to be praised and a hunger to be elevated and lifted up above your brothers, that doesn't come from the Spirit. It comes from the fact that 
a person is not already filled with the manna of Jesus Christ. In John 6, Jesus has just fed the multitudes and they come seeking another meal from him. And he reminds them that when Moses long ago had provided manna for the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings, that it wasn't the manna of Moses that they received. It was God's provision for them through Moses. Jesus then explains to those individuals who want Christ to once again multiply the loaves and fishes, he explains to them that the manna given in the wilderness was a sign pointing forward to the spiritual manna that God has provided to the people through Jesus himself. He, in fact, is the living bread of life that we need. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if we are filled with the love of Christ, then we won't pollute our love by trying to fill up our hearts with other things. We won't become puffed up with this hot air of man's approval because we're already filled. We're already satisfied and content with what the Lord has given to us. Look at how Paul describes this in the book of Colossians. I love this passage. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Apostle Paul writes here, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. And, and look at how he describes the filling here. He's asking in prayer that the Colossians might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So think about what Paul prays for these Colossians. He prays that they would be filled with something very specific here, with the knowledge of his will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he goes on to say why he wants them filled with those things. Why? So that they will walk in that knowledge, so that it will pour out of them by means of works that resemble the work of Jesus Christ himself. When you are filled with Christ and Christ is brimming out of you, there's no room to be filled with the hot air of arrogance. There's no room to to go around boasting of what you can do and who you are apart from other individuals, you're filled with Christ. You're not looking for the superficial filling of people's words of approval or the applause of the crowds. You're filled with Christ already. You're satisfied in Him. He prays that they will be filled with the strength of God and His mighty power. Why? So that they might endure to the end with joy. With joy. The saddest people are the ones who are always trying to convince you of how happy and, and fulfilled they are. The saddest people are those who are constantly looking for an audience because they are not filled with Christ. They don't have that security and that peace of knowing that something much greater than them has chosen to love them with a graceful and merciful love. Paul prays for these Colossians that they would be filled with all of these good blessings and promises. Why? So that they might give thanks to God the Father in all things. The emphasis is always where? It is always on the Lord and what He has done for us. 
The manna of Christ strengthens us and we are now able to do righteous and mighty deeds thanks to the cleansing that he has caused to happen in our lives. And the emphasis is not on the believer. It is on the one in whom the believer believes. And if we're going to do any boasting at all, it should be in the great work that God is doing and has done and will do in this church by his own power. Christian, love is basically an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has filled you. Do you want to be better at loving others? Then stop trying to give them more of you. Give them more of the Christ that you have been filled with. Because if you truly love another person, you want what is best for them. And Christ is better for them than you are. So share that Christ that is in you with your brother or sister. Share that Christ that is in you with your family member, with your coworker, with your neighbor, that they might see and taste of the goodness of Christ. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, you no longer have the need to run around trying to fill yourself up with the praises of men, with the treasures of this world that are constantly fading, with the fleeting victories of considering yourself better than others. We don't need all of that fluff, all that hot air. If you have Christ, you're filled. You have what you need. We read this simple but powerful definition of what love is and what it is not. And there's a very good chance that the weakness of our own ways of loving is being exposed by the text. How do we respond if that is the case? How do we allow a passage like this to impact the way that we love? It is not adequate to simply feel bad about not loving well. Again, we, we cannot content ourselves to think of love as little more than feelings that we feel. Last week, Pastor Paul was talking about how love is active. You see verb after verb used to describe love here. It is, it is what we do because of what we believe. And so godly love is so much more active than just feeling bad about not loving enough. If the Word of God has revealed a deficiency in your love and has exposed something in you that does not match the Savior then let us not simply lament the failure. Let us repent of our lovelessness, church. When we repent of sins of commission, it's a little more straightforward. You know, there's two kinds of sins, essentially. Sins that we commit, we break God's law outright. But then there's also sins of omission, where God has called us to do something holy and good, and yet we neglect to do that. Whether it's because we are being rebellious to Him, or we allow ourselves to be so swept up with the idols of the world that we're not thinking about the things of Christ, or perhaps we just do it because we're lazy. We, we, we omit the good things that God has called us to. Fear can also be a powerful deterrent to committing the, the loving commands and obeying the loving commands that God has given to us. So if I commit a sin, it's easier to repent of that. If I steal, there's physical evidence that I have done wrong, and there is a natural course to take, right? I give back the thing that I stole, or I pay for the thing that I ruined. If I tell a lie, what can I do? I, I confess that the lie was false, and I do what I can to replace it with the truth, accepting whatever consequences come with the reality of that truth. But with sins of omission, sins that are sins because I opted to not do what God has commanded me to do, repentance can seem a little strange, because it's, it's less clear who I've offended. And I'm not necessarily sure who I'm supposed to apologize to. So as we think about lovelessness as a sin, 
as a sin that is committed by a great many Christians today, then we must remember that all sin is first and foremost an offense to God. When we break the law of God, we are, we are offending Him first. And so, even though we don't see a clear victim when we weigh our lack of love for others, we can see that lovelessness is an offense to the God that has made us and loved us so well. So to repent is to seek God's help in righting what we have made wrong by ignoring His command to love others. And so to do that, church, we would confess our sin to Him. We would acknowledge that whatever I have been trying to pass off as love is not truly love if it doesn't follow the pattern that Jesus has set for us. If my love has been envious and discontent, if I've looked to others and saying, oh, I just would be happy if I had what that other person had, when all the while I have, I have the love of Christ in my heart already, then I need to confess that to the Lord God. If I've been taking for granted what I've been given by the grace of God and, and, and burning instead for something different and perhaps something that someone else is or has, I've been wanting that, then I need to confess that to the Lord and acknowledge it as sin. We confess first to the Lord, but then it might also be beneficial for us to confess this to the one that we have lacked love for. Husbands, if you have not been actively loving your wife the way that you know that you need to, with this kind of patience and long-suffering, with this kind of kindness, if you have been envious towards her, if you've been boastful over her, if you've been uh, loving her in a way that is domineering instead of the way that Christ leads his church, then there is appropriate action to be taken. Go to your wife and show her that you see in, in Scripture that your love needs to be more like the love of Christ. Confess that to her. Ask her for forgiveness. And pray then that the Lord would give you the strength to be more loving to your spouse as Christ is to the church. You might need to confess this to your children. I know that there are times when uh, a husband can be envious of his wife's affection for the children and can, can compete almost with his, his own children. It might be appropriate to go to your kids and confess your, your envy over them. Uh, th- th- you might need to confess this to your coworkers who you've been boasting to and you've been trying to compete with, when in reality, you should be humble in the way that you approach your job and, and should be an example of, of, of godly service to your coworkers. If my service to the church has just been a, a thinly veiled scheme to boast of my righteousness to others and to show off my impressive gifts, then that service to the church has in fact been something other than love. Be honest with God and with yourself if this applies to you. Do not stop serving. Do not stop using your gifts, but ask God for the grace to do that kind of service with a selfless love for the brothers and sisters that matches the love we learn about here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So to repent of lovelessness, we confess that sin to the Lord and if appropriate, to other people. And secondly, we turn away from our sin. You wouldn't even get this far in repentance without the Holy Spirit's help. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we don't admit that we are loveless at all. But when the Holy Spirit grieves our heart and we begin to see that we need to turn away from this lack of love, then what do we do? We don't try to start doing it on our own. Instead, we turn to that Spirit that is filling us up and we rely on Him. We ask Him for the strength to help us to turn away from the envy and the boasting that has corrupted our behavior. When your hands go to pick up those habits again, identify that and admonish yourself to stop. Remember the baptism by which you were baptized and which you identified with the church of God and declared to the world that you are living for Him now, 
that the life of sin and selfishness that you used to live is dead and buried and that you now walk in a newness of life in Christ. Remember that and then refuse to be what you were as the regeneration that has been wrought in you by the Holy Spirit has brought you alive in Christ Jesus and has made you new. I have been crucified with Christ and yet I, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we confess our sin of lovelessness and then we turn away from that lovelessness. We determine to put that sin to death, to mortify that fleshly desire to be selfish and to boast and brag about the self. And then we do the final step of repentance. We walk in the opposite direction. We don't just stand with our backs to sin. We take up the path of our Savior Jesus and we begin to love like God loves us. And it might be very hard to do that at first. It might seem somewhat unnatural because we as human beings love to have affection pointed at ourselves. But when we are saved in Christ, God teaches us to be selfless and to love one another. So it might be a little unnatural at first, but so was throwing a ball. So was riding a bike the first time you tried it. Have you ever seen a toddler trying to brush their teeth before? They are terrible at it. They are the worst teeth brushers in the world, right? I think that's maybe why God gives them fake teeth at first, and they all fall out, right? Because he knows they're going to blow it at first. So they get a whole a do-over, a whole other set of teeth, right? So you might be really bad at Christian love when you start to determine to actually love like this, to actually love the way that Christ loves you. It, it, you might fail at it from time to time. Stick with it, Christian. Continue to put your eyes on Christ and watch how he loves you. Reflect and meditate on the grace and mercy that you've felt from him, that you've experienced by him putting his wrath, his just wrath on himself instead of letting it fall on you. Think about the amount of forgiveness you've received in Christ. And then love your brothers and sisters with that kind of love in mind. Walk in the newness of life that God has given to you and trust the spirit that God has placed in you to equip you and empower you to love in a godlier way. You know, the analogy of Vince Lombardi and the fundamentals of football that I brought up earlier only goes so far, of course, because football is just a game. The Christian life is infinitely, infinitely more important than that. And you know that. That's why you are here and you're not in front of your TV at home. Although if your pastor is kind and doesn't preach too long, you might actually catch the one o'clock Niners game. <laughs> but you know that football is not as important as church, right? You know these things. This love that we are learning about, this lofty, incredible love, this love is such a blessing to us that nothing can compare to it. And we must be grateful for it above all things. Let us set our minds to know what godly love is and let us set our hands to the task of loving one another. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we praise you and thank you for the amazing grace that has poured out onto your servants. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to love with the kind of exceptional and phenomenal love that you have shown to us. God, we know that we cannot be perfect, but when we strive for perfection, when we make Christ our aim, then, then our love will become more godly. So give us grace, Father, to stay the course in this and give us mercy when we fall short of it. Lord, I, I can't imagine how loveless I have been in, in opportunities you have given to me to, to care for someone properly or share the gospel with them or to give of my resources to them. How many times have I just overlooked the opportunity 
or been so wrapped up in my own thing that I wasn't there for a brother or sister. God, forgive me of these things. Forgive us of times, Lord, when you have made a clear path to obedience and yet we have ignored it. Father, I pray that as we, we read about the wonders of love, and there's more to learn, God, that you would continue to enrich in our, understandment, our understanding of this wonderful, uh, this wonderful gift that you give to us. Help us to be not only recipients of love, but a channel through which your love can go out into the world. Be blessed as we bless others, Lord. May your name be exalted in our lives as we love with the love you have given. And we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Amen.